it's the same reason that I have a morning practice is that I'm getting in touch with myself and what I have available to myself. And then that informs me knowing what I have available to the world. Hey, you, you're listening to Not Yet, the podcast about our relationships and how they're the keys to our self-discovery. I'm your host, Paige Polk. I'm a community builder and Emmy award-winning digital media artist, channeling the powers of introspection. You're in the right place if you're mindful about the world you create and believe it's possible for us all to belong. I'm so grateful you're here. Now let's start the show. Welcome back to the Not Yet Podcast. This is Paige. If you're here, you are passionate about the world that you're creating and passionate about connecting with others to make it a reality. I am here with a new friend, Maceo Paisley. Hi, Maceo. How are you? Hi, Paige. Um, and we're here to talk about identity and we're here to talk about shared identity and how to bridge that cavernous and small space that lives in between. Um, Maceo Paisley is a multidisciplinary artist, designer, and cultural producer who explores themes in society and identity through movement, language, and imagery. Though he began his career in the U.S. Army and corporate America, for the past decade, he's performed on national stages as a dancer, spoken word artist, and performance artist. He also serves as the executive director of the nonprofit platform Citizens of Culture, where he uses art to help communities and organizations develop critical thinking, emotional intelligence, and resource equality. (laughs) Uh, how does that feel in your body when you hear your bio said to you? Uh, feels good. It you know there are some like light memories that uh, come up. There are some edits that also pop into my head that I want to make. And uh, but then I'm like, okay, yeah, that's great. It's still fine for you know what it's done. I've been um, thinking about bios a lot in the past 48 hours in particular. I don't know what came on, but last two days, um, because they're always in motion, right? How we describe ourselves, how we share ourselves with the people around us is transient. And for a, a while, I w- had a really strong grip on my own bio. I would be editing it every week or so, or I'd be on my website being like, that's not right. Oh, is this a fair representation of myself? And I kind of had to let it go. And let it breathe and just know that it will never be me. I'm the only me that'll ever be me. (laughs) Uh, But I'm glad to know that you're acknowledging that the edits can exist while the current status of it can exist too. Yeah, and I don't don't have to make the edit. I I can just recognize them and be like, ooh. Awesome. Well, we have the black and white version of Maceo. Um, but can you tell me who you are beyond the bio? You know, um, <clears throat> I'm curious. I'm playful. I am observant and I'm critical. So, but, I, but, but I'm also creative. So the criticality is, um, one of the places where my creativity comes from, but it 
primarily comes from my curiosity of like what happens if I push this button kind of thing. Um, and, or like what happens if I take this apart and, uh, there, there's an opportunity to interrogate things and be observant. Um, and part of that is like playful. Um, I think that I, um, I'm fascinated with the concept of time and, you know, one of my biggest pet, my biggest pet peeves about being a human in the, in the 21st century is that, um, most people that I meet don't know who they are. They don't know what they want. And when they do, they have difficulty communicating those things in the timing that allows for other people to respond. And then also the, the challenge of developing practices that help us shift and affirm who we are and what we want. So a large part of my work has been about addressing those things, how to help people to know who they are, what they want, how to communicate it and develop practices that encourage the shifting in ways that we want. So we can be truly self-determinate after we've won the sort of battles against the external oppressive forces, we still have to like develop the skill sets and the mastery of honing our own rituals so that we can craft ourselves into what we'd want to become. Crafting ourselves. I love this ourselves as an, as a medium. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I, uh, I have more and more than one occasion, you know, have said my pronouns are us, we, and our. And I, I think that I don't always identify that way, but sometimes I do. What's the most recent thing that you took apart? The most recent thing that I took apart was my audio computer setup. It was all attached to this old legacy computer that didn't um, have the stability or functionality to support what I was trying to accomplish. So I had to get some adapters and some pieces and order some things online and grab some things um, with a vision in mind to upgrade to a more powerful and sophisticated system. Um, but that meant that I had to completely undo the previous system in order to transition into the new one. I'm giggling at the layers. That's all. I know it sounds like a metaphor for life or something, but I just was like changing my studio setup. What's the last thing that you put back together? I mean, the last thing that I put back together, I will say is, uh, you know, uh, my drum set. Hmm. Thanks. Um, can you tell me, um, because we actually, this is the first time that we're meeting <laughs> and <Correct>. I'm meeting, <laughs> I, I'm, I'm meeting more people on the internet than I am meeting people in person now. I, I think that that, that numbers shift happened slowly through our experience with COVID. And I'm not quite sure how I feel about it yet. I think I have to do it some more to Where calibrate. Where are you physically? I'm physically in Durham, North Carolina. Oh, gotcha. Mm -hmm. Where did you, you imagine I was physically? 
uh, nowhere necessarily, but I I have friends in Durham and my parents or my family lives in Asheville, North Carolina. Where are you physically in space? I'm in Detroit. In Detroit. Okay. This does give me more information. Thank you for the information. Mm-hmm. No, I um I originally reached out to you. I reached out to you because I stumbled upon your dancing. That was really the thing that um sort of like when you have a like an internal barometer for when vibes are complementary. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. uh, um i'm i'm recognizing that the that the system that my system picks up the vibes regardless of the format um sometimes it's music sometimes it's physical expression sometimes it's an idea um sometimes it's color and it was your dancing for me and I thought, wow, that's so beautiful. I want to know more about this person. And then I looked up more about this person and then found that this person loves people. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, uh, I'm, I'm in a, I'm in a relationship w- with, with people where I do love people and also I am deeply frustrated by them, but I, but I totally get why, you know, I I totally get why people cut people off in traffic. I totally understand your anxiety to get where you want to get on time is fueling you to be slightly um, impolite. Um, I, but I'm frustrated by the fact that it can create an unsafe paradigm around you know driving and like where that same kind of thing pops up all over society and all of our interactions where we have this impulse we have this demand on ourselves and we're trying to respond to that our internal situation and it contributes to an a dynamic that other people have to deal with as a result and so that's like the connection between you know, the internal practice of dance and then the external practice of how I negotiate being a member of society is that I have to start with my own movement, why I'm doing it and the way I'm doing it. And then when I move into social performance, then other people are interacting with that. I like this conversation around like your personal practice and your personal, we didn't say personal performance, but that's what I'm reading and performance and practice and shared space. Um, I, um, I've had a personal movement practice that I can actively touch since I was 17 Um, I've been practicing yoga since 17 and that's always been very personal. Uh, and deeper into my adulthood, I began craving shared movement. Um, and I, I tried a few spaces. I tried some capoeira classes. I tried some ballet and 
I felt such a deep fear of that vulnerability of being in personal movement with other people. And I don't think it's that shocking for myself anyway, that, that, that dynamic shows up in other spaces that I might feel comfortable doing something or being something or expressing something in my solitude or exploring something or diving into something in my solitude. But that it's a vulnerable practice to take your internal experience and practice it in the world, knowing that people will interact with it. And I think it's a necessary practice, but I have this feeling that it's getting harder to do our internal work with others. And I don't know if that's me. And I'm curious because you do a lot of community work around identity and expression, if that's a theme that you see popping up. I do have a personal practice. Um, a while back, I started, I started by calling it public practice. So the idea to me is that who I am in private, who I am in private, and who I am in public. Public meaning whenever there's someone else around me, or I am visible to someone else, who doesn't have a deep understanding and or compassion for who I am. Then, I am in public. So. And and that's contextual to the behavior that I'm doing. Dancing is something that I have worked on being able to do in public to the extent that my, my journey with dance was not to create a technical mastery, but it was to get to the place of comfort in my own body that the movement and the feeling of movement was indistinguishable whether there were people watching me or not, that I could get to sort of my place of home even while people were watching me. And that was, um, that felt very powerful for me to be able to hold myself in my fullness and um, when subject to the gaze of others. And that became, that's very important <clears throat> to me as an artist because of the level of my sort of uh, performance w was able to be very authentic and true um, and touching, um, but it carried over into my public practice, my daily life, in that I developed more of a comfort in saying what I felt and identifying where I needed to develop tools to be able to do so. Um, and that's helpful. Um, so I do think there's a thread there. And then as far as community, I also feel that that's like a whole other discipline, a, a related discipline, but there is the way I am when I'm in the grocery store shopping and I don't feel like I'm actively being looked at, you know, that's one form of being in public. There's another form of being in public when I'm on stage performing and I know I'm being looked at and I'm, I'm sort of delivering to some degree what the implicit expectation is that I would deliver uh, to some degree of acknowledgement of the audience and our and our implicit contract that they're quiet while I'm speaking, 
because they're here to receive what I'm sharing, something like that. Like that might be one tenet of an implicit agreement between a performer and, and their audience. But then there's the kind of public practice that has to do with collaboration and co-creation of the society that we have and the community that we communities that we inhabit. So that area I found there is a lot of room for people to develop uh, abilities when we say we want to live in deep community. But what we say by what we mean by that isn't always very clear. And how we go about doing it isn't always very clear, especially when, you know, someone borrows your hairbrush and um, they break it or lose it. And now you have to talk about the commitment that was made to return it and not um, being able to fulfill that. And you have to talk about trust and boundaries and expectations and grief and, and resolution and conflict. So those are things where the sort of deepening of our community practice became really, really important to me. And I felt that art was a place where we could start to practice negotiating the differences between us in a space that was safe to do so. I know you've been letting life ride at a slow simmer this fall to make it to 2023. And I'm happy you did because you needed that rest. You needed to get honest with yourself about what your priorities are for the new year. And you have. So now what? Now you're at the fun part, the exploratory phase where you know the what and anything is possible when it comes to the how. This phase can be thrilling, terrifying, chaotic, and inspiring all at once. But first of all, slow down. You don't have to figure out the how just yet. The career shift of your dreams, setting loving boundaries with your family, calling in relationships that support the human you're becoming. All of these big changes begin with an idea. And I'm gonna help you bring your big idea to life through my winter mindfulness coaching program. I built this 10 week container for creators exploring their relationship with intentional living. It's right for you if you're ready to shift your life and you believe in a world you haven't yet seen. You know what you want, but you don't know how to get there? Join me for weekly guidance, curated mindfulness practices, and the accountability you've been craving. Applications close at midnight, December 18th, and I want to see yours. Check out the link in the show notes to apply. As you were talking, I was thinking, this sounds like boundary work. This sounds like understanding for yourself where you begin and where you end. And negotiating, to use a word that you said, where our shared space is and what our shared rules are and when and where those rules can be flexible and power. Thank you for thinking of these things. Yeah, I don't talk explicitly about power that much um but it's connected to uh, liberty and agency which i talk about a lot 
how is power connected to liberty and agency for you? When a person talks about what they're capable of, I think that there's two factors. There's the interest that they have in doing whatever it is, the purpose for it. And then there's their technical or practical capacity to execute. And so, whereas I might have, you know, talking about myself, I might have the interest in flying. I don't have the practical capacity to fly. So my agency in the area of flight is limited by my practical ability to execute on that or my technical capacity to do so, even though I have all the interest in the world. So you need both. And in law, they talk about mens rea and actus rea, which is like the will to act and then the act itself. But when it comes to power, sometimes the impetus for our particular action isn't coming from us directly. It's coming from our, our past trauma or internalized messaging about the way we're supposed to behave or an explicit demand that you do this action or you're going to be harmed in some way. Um, or a positive thing will be withheld from you. And so there's that. Then there's the other side of the practical ability to execute, which is, you know, someone forcing you, holding you down, putting you in a jail cell, um, and so this is where like, there's the mind body thing, um, this sort of mind body duality. But the reason I don't talk about power so much is because oftentimes that frames a conversation around the external, um, limitations and the external motivations and agency to me is those same things, but they're the ones that are generated from inside of us. So the intrinsic motivation and the intrinsic uh, development of capacity is, is agency. So it's your personal power. And, and that's what agency is. When we talk about power dynamics between uh, individuals, then that, that conversation makes more sense, but it requires a kind of medium to have power um, between two individuals. There has to be something that connects them, like language, like institutions, like states, like um, you know, uh, resources. But I don't have to leverage specifically uh, any kind of manipulation medium to have power, quote, uh, personal power, because it's generated by me and it's executed by me. Okay. I like this. I can be really theoretical. If you want to bring it down a notch, you can. Thank you for the offering. I like the clouds. Okay. <laughs> no, I enjoy the clouds. Um, is there a, a physical aspect of this that it pops into your head just as an example? Yeah. I mean, it's, it's the same reason that I have a morning practice is that I'm, First, getting in touch with myself and what I have available to myself. And then that informs me knowing what I have available to the world. So if I have back pain and that's going to draw on my capacity to be focused in a conversation, then I should know that going out into the world so that I can either 
prime those people that I'm talking to say, hey, if I'm a little distracted or if I'm fidgety, it's not because of the things that you're saying are making me feel uncomfortable. I'm just already uncomfortable because I have back pain. So just know that this is about me and not about you. And they could say, awesome, thanks. Or I could say, if I'm slow to respond, it's because I'm dealing with some back pain issues and I have to do some work to manage that throughout the day. And then they're like, awesome. You know, so knowing that I'm having, you know, some tension in my, in my body gives me the opportunity to like communicate expectations to people around me that allow for grace, compassion, um, but also just a more realistic um, set of expectations from which we can negotiate. Which also loops in like the, the benefit of a personal practice and a regular personal practice, because you can figure out if your back is hurting that day, or if your back is hurting every day, <laughs> and if your back is hurting every day, how can you make adjustments so that your back is no longer hurting? That That's a great way to put it. Cool. Thanks, Maceo. So uh, when I reached out to you, I was really struck by this phrase that kept coming up in your work, which was using art to foster critical thinking and emotional intelligence. And I, well, hmm, hmm. I was going to say, I don't know if I identify as an artist. That's still something I'm reckoning with. Um, but I do come from a family of people who are very strongly rooted in their identity as an artist. And I think that it's helped me think expansively. Mm -hmm. uh, and I wonder... Um, because art is, is really fun. <laughs> it's a fun place to, it's a fun space to play in. Um, and when you know what the metaphors are and when you know what the frameworks are that are connecting it to lived experience outside of the play, it can be really powerful. And I'm curious, like we're talking about self-awareness. We're talking about practices that build self-awareness. We're talking about how that practice can help you feel more grounded in your connections with others. I am curious about what is the next step? So we're building our personal practice, whether that's through movement or through mind or body or spirit. We have a deep understanding of where home is when we're alone, when there's no external stimuli, even though that's not really real, they're minimal or they're we're comfortable with the stimuli that we have. What is the next step when it comes to integrating that home into the outside world? There's a philosopher named Byung Chul Han who has a book called um, The Death of Ritual, I believe. Or something to that effect it's around here i just have to grab it but he's he says that ritual is the ritual is the thing that allows us to make home in the world so the connection piece is that the artist has been granted the authority over their work that is absolute 
subjective and fueled by their desires and interests. So there's a blank canvas and you can put whatever you want on it. You can put a red dot, a blue dot, a square, a triangle, anything all the way up to a classical um, painting or just a bunch of little abstract squiggles, right? You have that authority as a creator over the canvas, which is an object. But if you practice that ability, uh, then you can see that there are other areas where you have authority and you might want to develop. But the thing that creates anxiety around having a blank canvas and to some extent identifying ourselves as artists is that with so much possibility lying in front of us, many of us lack the either the technical ability to produce things that we want or a confusion over what we would want to create in the first place, like writer's block. I don't know what I should write. You know, I'm not sure that I'm a confident enough writer to put these thoughts into words. And that can keep us from producing work, making action, putting strokes on the canvas, words on the page. And the same thing is true for the way in which we construct ourselves and our identity. We don't have an absolutely blank canvas because we've inherited language, we've inherited, you know, <clears throat> physical characteristics. But in terms of the way we craft our life, we do have a lot of flexibility on what clothes to wear, what food to eat, where we live. And this is obviously in negotiation with the social and economic forces that are around us. But even the way we encounter those forces is up to us. And if you're an existentialist, you could go so far as to say the way that we view the world and ourselves is the site is the is the first site of our agency, our perspective. And that we have authority to say, this uncomfortable thing I'm experiencing now means the world is unfair and um, people are bad, or it means that I've received I'm receiving karma from a past life and this is what I'm what I deserve. Or this isn't uncomfortable. This is an opportunity to, for me to grow and stretch, which is ultimately what I want to do. And so this thing that is uncomfortable is a positive. And so those three ways of using our own authorship over perspective to view the circumstances of our life, and then we can respond through those perspectives in the way that we respond and the way that we carry ourselves. So you have a blank canvas, which is your perspective. You can put whatever on it. You can use that lens to interpret the world. And, and by practicing on art, looking at a painting and saying, well, what do you see? Well, I see a, a red square. All right, cool. Well, you know what I see? I see a, a raging bull driving towards a matador. Awesome. Well, how did you see that? It's well, because I understand, like you said, the metaphor, red and bulls and squares and bulls are kind of like uh rectangular and capes are kind of rectangular and so there's there's this interaction between uh this activity another person's like wow you got all that from from two things sitting there yes i did it just as in the same way because i didn't text someone back uh in a day and a half they got they ab abstracted a whole story about why i didn't they created that it was something that they said and that they were upset and we probably shouldn't talk anymore and they're really embarrassed. And, you know, I hope 
that they, they hope I don't ignore them anymore. And in the same way that a person could see a red square and see a raging bull, a person could see an unresponded to text and come up with and, and also have a narrative about something going on in that circumstance. So we do have authorship and identifying the places where we use our imagination and how we use our imagination to craft the reality that we experience in is happening in the practices of viewing and creating art and that we can carry that skill set over to the practice of viewing and creating ourselves, viewing and creating our societies, viewing and creating our relationships. I feel warm and fuzzy. <laughs> cool. <laughs> Very cool. I like this idea of uh, practice transference. I never thought about viewing art in that way. I think I thought about experiencing art. Like, I, I think that I don't know what the, I know what it is. Viewer, what is it? <laughs> uh, viewing doesn't feel embodied to me right now. I think yeah. it's because there's so many screens everywhere all of the time. Uh, my brain hasn't quite calibrated to how there are so many realities that we can dive into and having that really settle into my lived experience. It kind of just stops at my face. Um, whereas I, I love gathering. Like that is, it is what I, what I would do if no one asked me to do anything. It's what I do when everyone asks me to do everything. It helps me feel more like myself to curate space for us to be together and be ourselves. And uh, this pandemic is messing with my brain <laughs> a little bit. Um, I feel like I've, I'm, I'm being called to reevaluate what gathering even means um, and the different layers of it. Um, but I do like the idea of even potentially being more curious and more open and more creative about how I interpret viewing. That feels freeing to me. Mm -hmm. Great. I'm glad that you got a warm and fuzzy from that. <laughs> That's cool. Awesome. Thanks. Um, so you're telling me a lot of the stuff that you're thinking about right now. Um, and though I do love hearing about what you're thinking, um, can you tell me about some of the practices that you're practicing? Well, it's funny that you say viewing doesn't feel embodied because I'm actually doing a performance uh, at Cranbrook Museum of Art in, um, in Michigan um, that really does put the practice of viewing into an embodied state. So there are these very large scale, they're not very large, there are these large scale works by uh, James Benjamin Franklin. And usually what people do when they go to a museum is they stand still in front of a art piece and they stand and they look at it and their eyes move around and they maybe put their hand on their chin or their hands behind their back. But when you're listening to music, you're not usually just sitting in a chair listening to music. Maybe your foot starts tapping, right? But there's a difference in experience listening to music while dancing to music 
versus listening to music while simply sitting in a chair stationary. So if I transfer that metaphor over to the viewing of art, then the question is asked, well, what changes in the experience of viewing art when I'm no longer doing it from the static, static position of standing or sitting in front of it, but instead moving along with the art, tracing with my finger the squiggles and the lines, moving closer to see the brush strokes, stepping further back to see what the full canvas is offering, moving to the left or right and seeing if there is any change in what I'm able to perceive because I've shifted perspective. And then of course, coming back to the piece and seeing it in a different state of mind, just like you would listen to a song when it first comes out because it's like trending, but then you might go back to it to hear it again because it gave you something the first time that you want to reconnect to. And then you're able to recognize a difference in how you experience all things, but it also moves the viewing from happening just in your eyes to also happening in your fingers, to also happening in your shoulders, to also happening in your feet. And then we do this together in community and that changes things as well. When is this happening? Where is it happening again? Oh, this is happening in Michigan. It's going to be on Thursday, actually, but there's going to be some video produced. So when that's available, I'll probably put it on my site. Okay, cool. Looking forward. Um, and so I'm I'm the kind of person that you can, if you can catch me in a museum, I'm probably dancing in the museum, trying to find a way to interact with the art in a way that is more interactive for me. What's the last museum you danced in? The Modern Museum of Art in Dallas. No, in Fort Worth, Texas. Yeah. Did anyone dance with you? No, there were some people in the space beforehand that were kind of playing with sound. And, uh, you know, I did some movement in Richard Serra's Vortex in front of the Modern Museum of Art in Fort Worth, Texas. Well, Macia, we've done some big thinking and some small thinking and some curious thinking about perspective and about transference and about practice. And I wonder, what is one practice that's helping you discover who you are right now? Um, you know, it's going to be really simple. I, um, I play the drums very loud and very fast and it helps me to see what my attention span is, what my, uh, capacity to adjust is. Um, and, um, it changes every day. So I like that there's movement. Cool. Super cool. Thanks, Maceo. Uh, I would love it if you could share what you're working on, where to find it, how folks can find you and your practice. So the biggest sort of project that I have going on right now is called The Friend Show. And it's uh, a, a playful take on adult television. So instead of talking about contemporary news, the daily events of politics and celebrities, really what I'm trying to talk about 
our perennial subjects, like what it means to be human in the 21st century, relationships, friendship, work-life balance, sustainability, mental health, love, right? And um, all of that happens in the container of friendship, like we're grabbing coffee, um, but it takes the shape of the skin of like a children's show. So it's fun and colorful and there's puppets and music. And so my drumming, you know, is a part of that is a way to practice songwriting and develop skills that I'm going to later put into the friend show. I have a Patreon for it and a TikTok and an Instagram and a little section for that. Um, and then we release products throughout the year um, that are exclusive to the people who support. So, you know, you can go to patreon.com slash Maceo Paisley and see more about that. You can also find me on Instagram, Maceo Paisley and uh, friend show dot the or something like that. But it's all on my on my uh, websites. So that's like the plug of things that I'm, I actively have that I'm working on. And then, you know, just see me dancing in a museum near you. <laughs> Awesome. Thank you so much, Maceo. I'm probably going to dance today. Awesome. Enjoy. I hope you enjoyed this conversation with Maceo as much as I did. And to stick with the theme of the conversation, I have a question for you. Where was the last place that you danced? The last place that Maceo danced was in an art museum in Fort Worth. The last place I danced was in my living room last night. And I want to hear from you in the comments of our podcast. So you know that I really appreciate when you rate this podcast. It helps people hear about the fabulous work that we're doing and really learn about connection with themselves and others. So if you could hop on whatever app you're listening to this podcast right now, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, rate us and tell us where was the last place that you danced. Thanks for listening. And I hope you enjoyed today's episode of Not Yet. The podcast is hosted by me, Paige Polk, and produced by Paige Polk International. The show art is made by Elizabeth Olguin, and the music is by Elder. Don't forget to subscribe here. And if you want more of this love in your life, visit notyetseries.com to join the Not Yet Project and community.